0: This is The Science of Sex, a
1: podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Hosted by Dr. Jana, a sex researcher and professor of human sexuality at NYU, and Joe Partavila, the guy who's a fan of sex. Hey now. Here's Dr. Jana and Joe. Hi, Dr. Jana. Hi. It's John and Joe. Yay. Hey. Well yeah. welcome to episode thirty-four. <laughs> well, else would to be That was kind of a weird introduction. How are you, uh, young lady? Everything good?
2: Everything good, yep. Yep.
1: yep. We are back for another week It's of- summer
2: in New York City, I know. so it's amazing. Although
1: technically it's not summer. It's, not, little, it's not it's not summer. it's it's still spring, technically. You're it's th- summer. Th- hey, oh my god. The woman who is literal about everything
2: has to be literal about the
1: seasons, uh, okay? okay.
2: It's nice and warm outside. Okay, thank you can... very
1: much. Uh, if you're sitting out on the great lawn or if you're out in the middle of somewhere, maybe you're on a beach or a pool listening. Thank you for joining us. This is episode 34. Today we are going to be speaking to Dr.
2: Kristen Mark. Yes. What's she all about? The University of Kentucky. (laughs) What is she all about? Um, You already have her uh, Canadian accent, huh? Yes. (laughs) Well, she's going to talk to us about maintaining sexual desire in long-term relationships. She did this very extensive review of all the research out there on this topic, trying to figure out how the heck do long-term couples maintain, what are the factors that help people maintain sexual passion and mm, spark right. over long periods of time
1: i have a feeling communication i have something to do with it
2: communication usually plays a role yes
1: yes <laughs>
2: i mean maybe we should just interview you are you still having sex with your partner of 20 plus years? hey don't you have one of those uh talks you got coming up on? i do and it's a very very special one okay and i apologize for not informing people of this earlier because it's kind of it's coming up it's on june 11th okay this is going to be an event to talk about sex work versus sex trafficking. We haven't talked too much about it on the podcast, but there's been all of this stuff going on with these bills around sex trafficking and and sex work that don't really make a distinction between the two called sesta Fasta. And so I wanted to do something that addressed this issue and engaged people to talk about this issue. And we are doing an event where it's not going to be just me doing my sex on social, but we have a special guest. His name is Suraj Patel, who is running as a Democratic primary candidate for the 12th district in New York City, which includes... Basically, Williamsburg, Greenpoint, Long Island City, Astoria, and then a lot of the east side of Manhattan. So if you are one of the voters in these districts, this could be your representative. And this is one of those districts. The primaries is really the only thing that matters. It's huge. It's coming up in a couple
1: weeks, right? It is coming up. Yeah. Yeah. It
2: is June 26th is the primaries. And so Suresh Patel is this young 34-year-old guy who's trying to primary out someone who's been in Congress from this district for 25 years, who voted for this bill that. that a lot of sex workers are not happy about. And he's been very vocal against this bill. And his entire platform is pretty sex positive and kind of gender and sex inclusive. And I thought it would be really interesting to have him as a guest on a panel discussing sex work, sex trafficking, what his views are, but also what is possible to do, politically speaking, around this issue and what might not be possible to do. So we're going to have him. We're going to have also Stoya, who is a sort of a pretty famous pornographer former porn actress yeah. and also an activist who's been very outspoken about women's rights and feminism and sex workers rights and, and you know porn rights and all, all of these things so um, I'm very happy to have her and Saraj Patel and then we're trying to get somebody from uh, one of the sex workers organizations uh, to be on the panel as well and so all of this is happening on June 11th 7 to 9 followed by uh, a reception at the Hacienda Villa at the same space where I have the sex and socials. So it's a sex positive intentional community in Brooklyn in Bushwick which is not in the 12th district. is just a few blocks yeah. south of the cutoff point for the 12th district but it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's okay. It's easily accessible from it the 12th district. E- very yes. easily accessible <laughs> yeah. from the 12th district. <laughs> this is going to be just like all of the other events. It's going to be live streamed on uh, Facebook Live. People can be there in person. They can watch the live stream online. It, it, it's a really interesting issue to engage with. And it's also maybe an incentive for people to go out and vote in the primaries. The primaries, especially in New York State, is not something that a lot of people engage with. I was looking at the numbers and 8% of the voter population voted in the last midterm primaries. Yeah. 8%.
1: Well, think about it. No 8%. One, nobody went out to vote for the mayor when that was up. So <laughs> it just goes to show you no one's going out to the primaries either. That's so. true. But it's an important issue that you say mm-hmm. no one and no one has really kind of grabbed a hold of until mm-hmm. this guy came around.
2: Yeah, and in, in fact the current person who's representing the 12th district Carolyn Maloney, she not only voted very proudly for SESTA-FOSTA for this bill, but also co-authored it. So I think if people care about some of these issues, then this might be something to get them incentivized and motivated to go and engage and vote uh, in the primaries because once the general election uh, rolls around, it's going to be irrelevant.
1: Cool. And one last thing, where do people go online to find tickets for this event? On
2: Eventbrite, and you look for sex work versus sex trafficking. Half of all the donation-based ticket sales are going to be donated to a sex workers outreach organization. So please support sex workers who are just doing work.
1: All right, cool. Then let us get going with episode number 34.
0: The Science of Sex Foreplay.
1: All right, Dr. Jana, you probably saw this trending the other day, and I, I know you, you're not crazy about having kids one of these days. You're not really <laughs> thinking about it.
2: I did. Think about it for a little bit, for a brief for, moment, for a split second. Yeah, yeah. I uh, decided that that's probably not my path.
1: All right, but, but let's let's talk about that path because the fertility rates fell to a record low for a second straight year in the U.S. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I want to get your thoughts on this. The U.S. fertility rate is the lowest it's been in 40 years, and the decline is sharpest for minority women. Hmm. The CDC reports last year's 3.85 million births reflect a fertility rate of about 1.76 births per woman. Those figures are a steep fall off from. 2007, when more than 4.3 million babies were born, and the fertility rate was nearly 2.1.
2: So it went from 2.1 to 1.76 per woman in about 10 years.
1: Yeah. Wow. So what? What, yeah. what what's your take? I mean, they did say the sharpest <laughs> drop was in minority women, but first blush, w- reasonings for the <laughs> fertility rate drop.
2: Well, this is part of a, a general pattern that's been going on for quite some time in the world pretty much everywhere, certainly in the developed world, that fertility rates have been going down and they've been getting below that replacement value of two, right? And so you have a lot of the European countries uh, Japan and some other kind of East Asian countries like Korea and and so on. Yeah, so a lot of these kind of developed nations have been have been dropping below that replacement value of, of two, and the U.S. is no different in that in that regard. The U.S. was kind of different because among all of the developed nations, we had the highest fertility rate, hmm. and we kind of still have a relatively high fertility rate for a developed nation but that gap is closing so we're getting closer and closer to some of these other kind of low low fertility level um countries like Western Europe and Northern Europe. So if we're catching Japan up with and, them, why, yeah. why do you think?
1: I mean, what are <laughs> well, they? What were they doing already that we weren't and now all of a sudden we are gotten on board?
2: I, I, I think uh, the U.S. Has, has always had more of a kind of family-oriented, um, I don't know, way of thinking and you know, marriage has been more important and stay-at-home moms have been a bigger part of the population than in some other countries where men and women work at similar rates. Yeah. Again, we are part of this general trend and again, this is not a trend that's happening only in the developed nations. The fertility rates have been dropping throughout the world. It's just that in some other places, 10, 20, 50 years ago, they were at like eight children per woman wow. uh, or seven, and they've now dropped to three or four or mm. something like that. So they've been dropping uh, pretty, pretty consistently. And this is driven, oh my God, this is driven by so many different factors. It's driven by decreasing infant mortality so fewer kids are dying in infancy so you need you don't need to have as many kids oh. right in order for some of them to survive
1: oh, that's a dark turn okay
2: yeah but it has probably it's probably one of the most important drivers wow. of of lower fertility rates because you just yeah i didn't even <laughs> think that yeah, yeah. Uh, then kids are expensive Kids take up a lot of time and energy and work. And so a lot of the time, people make decisions not to, not to have them, not to go in that direction. There might be some infertility issues for some people going on, maybe people waiting uh, longer to have kids. And then by the time they decide that they want to have those kids, they yeah. can't have them anymore and, and so How about on. here in the States, you and think uh,
1: birth control being more accessible?
2: Absolutely, birth control yeah. being more accessible. And uh, some of these data are showing that some of the steepest drops is among teen moms. So teenagers, oh. 15 to 19 years oh, uh, of cool. age. Yeah. So I think teen pregnancy prevention efforts are, are paying off and they have been paying off. Yeah. Those rates have been dropping dramatically in the last 10, 20 years uh, when they were really, really high and yeah. have, been, have been dropping. So uh, all of these things are kind of working together. Now, usually the lowest birth rates are among women who are highly educated. And that's a pretty consistent finding throughout the entire world the higher education a woman yeah. has the fewer children she's going to have so so again that's that's part of the the general trend now it's uh, actually interesting that the sharpest decline uh, is for minority women uh, that, that we're currently seeing because uh, usually you think of that of that low birth rate among white uh, women uh, and and the usually talking about sort of or thinking that that minority populations are not declining in in, but apparently they are. So, yeah, these some of these economic and and social factors that are affecting white women are affecting minority women, and it is part of a general trend that's happening all over the world.
1: Now, as a non-scientist, as I like to point out, mm-hmm. is this a good thing? Is the lower fertility rate is that is it generally good?
2: Depends on how you think about it. I think about it as a good thing because there. are way too many people on this planet mm-hmm. <laughs> i think we absolutely need to
1: slow our role as they say. <laughs> slow it down yeah.
2: and uh, so i i see the decline across the world as well as in the u.s as a as a good thing that i really hope continues and if possible even speeds up in some some places it's still pretty high and, yeah. and we, need to, we need to slow it down now th- there are some concerns in individual countries that having fewer young people is going to put economic strain on the system as a whole because fewer young people in their productive age are going to be able to support a growing older population that is not contributing because they're retired and yeah. maybe are um, having more f- uh, health health issues and so on and that fewer is- people at
1: disposable income the you know the capitalism would <laughs> take a little bit of hit as well,
2: well too uh, right right yeah. uh, but that that changing of the pyramid of how many people are making money versus how many people are kind of living off of the the system yeah. and and I certainly think that is a very real issues that some of these countries are going to have to grapple with but it's a it's sort of a temporary issue at some point the uh, the population is going to stabilize yeah. and overall i think it's going to be a good thing for the planet as a whole to put less strain yeah. on on all of the natural resources
1: well because that drop like you mentioned 10 years it's what less than less than a million right In within 10 years so it's not like it was a an exponential drop. Oh, it's 0.5 million. 0.5 million. Yeah, Yeah, so it's, it's not like it happened overnight. It slowly happened. So who knows? Maybe we may not see another, you know, steep drop like this in another 10 years, so... Who knows? But like you're saying, maybe all of a sudden we're, we're going to start to slow our roll and make stop making so many people so we're not so crowded here and mm-hmm. everything's good.
2: Yeah, I think fewer people is not the worst thing that could <laughs> happen to this world.
1: Now, you did give a bunch of reasons for the fertility rate, uh-huh. which I'm sure we're all scientifically backed. Uh You didn't just make those up. No, I did not. But you did not mention Netflix. <laughs> I
2: did not mention Netflix. I don't, know
1: if, you, I don't know if you noticed <laughs> that you did not mention that because a new study says that couples getting into bed and watching their own shows on different devices could be cutting down... On romantic time Oh so, interesting So safe Hypothetically it's, You so and I were
2: Netflix and chill
1: It's opposite People are
2: actually just chilling They're
1: just chilling <laughs> Because what happens uh, uh, Dr. John Is the fact that People have these multiple screens So say for example We're in bed together You've got your iPad I'm watching TV mm-hmm. I'm watching something You're watching something mm-hmm. else And then b- before you know it We're both falling asleep And the night's <laughs> over And then there's, no one's getting anything So researchers noticed mm-hmm. A huge spike in Netflix And YouTube usage usage Between 10 p.m. and 11 p.m., mm-hmm. so that I guess, customarily, maybe right before mm-hmm. you go to bed, a little mm-hmm. nooky nookie time, people are on YouTube. Which you know, from time to time, I get sucked into that YouTube rabbit hole, mm-hmm. where all of a sudden you'll be watching, you know, movie trailers from like 1987. You're like, what? Am I, what am I doing here? So a previous study also found couples were less interested in lovemaking because they were watching movies or programs in bed. So this is there's multiple studies out there that are saying that take the bed out of the room basically is what they're saying because mm-hmm. if you if you had the bed you got your tablet you're not going to, uh, you know, mean, you know, satisfying your uh, your significant other in the bed. You so, should
2: become a sex therapist.
1: I should, maybe I should. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's funny <laughs> in my situation, we watch a ton of TV in the living room mm-hmm. but very rarely in the bedroom. Like that's we,
2: how you maintain we have desire like, long term.
1: Hold on. Period. So I we do have I'm not a Quaker. We we do have a TV you do in have the, a TV? in the in the bedroom, but we do not we, I'm
2: not a Quaker, and I don't have a TV anywhere in the house and never will. Eh,
1: you're a strange bird. Uh, <laughs> but we don't watch a lot of TV in in the uh, bedrooms, and okay. we try to keep our phones off while we're, uh, we're in the bedrooms. No, bedroom, that's, so. that's
2: smart. No, no, absolutely. All kidding aside, yeah. I think having all these other potential distractions that we have today, all these interesting things that we could be doing, because there's a lot of good stuff on TV yeah. or on YouTube or whatever, just as there is a lot of you know, not yeah. so good stuff. But it is so easily accessible, and it's so easy to kind of get into that into that habit mm. of of doing something that is not necessarily interacting with your partner and having using technology in a way that uh, pushes you away or creates uh, creates kind of a, a barrier and distance. And yeah, I'm not too surprised. I'm kind of saddened by that. I think people should maybe take your advice and and uh, try to create space yes. for for. Uh, connecting or reconnecting with their partners at the end of the evening in some way. I went to this uh, dinner last week. I actually may have mentioned that same dinner. Remember that that loving couple? Oh, that yeah, the one that, so you th- that looked like, like, like a
1: giraffe and, in New York City? You're like, <laughs> what is this thing? A happy couple with children. This makes no sense.
2: Exactly. And at that same dinner was a was a woman who was more recently married <laughs> to, to uh, someone that she was madly in love with. But they had made this very deliberate decision to have sexual connection every day and that did not mean penis and vagina or right. you know any particular type of sex that they had to have but that every day they had a commitment to connecting with each other in a physical sexual way whatever that meant to them in in that any moment. given moment and yeah. in, in any given day so i think that that's kind of a good thing for people to think about that yeah. maybe they can set aside time when they're they're going to be affectionate and intimate with their partners and not just watch Netflix.
1: Yeah, and, and yeah, that sort of segues into what we're going to be talking to Kristen and Mark about, which is all about you know long-term relationships and uh, make it happen. I don't know if we'll, we'll discuss Netflix, but <laughs> you never know. <laughs> it could come up. But, but listen, there's a lot of ways to uh, keep a long-lasting relationship. Mm-hmm. And, and uh,
2: a lot of factors that can contribute to it. So let's get to it.
0: The Science of Sex Goes Deeper.
2: Earlier this year, the Journal of Sex Research published a paper that reviewed research from 64 empirical studies, all of which try to answer the very simple question of how to maintain sexual desire in long-term relationships.
1: That's that's uh, pretty you're, simple, You're right? being sarcastic, right? <laughs> well,
2: <laughs> nah. It's it's an easy thing. We all know it's it's no big deal. Sure. You know, after 20 years, you still want to have sex with your partner just as much as you wanted at the beginning. I mean, you would know, right? Yeah.
1: Uh, listen, uh, can you just continue with the introduction? <laughs> you don't have to get into me here
2: now, all right? Today we're talking about you. This is about you. So uh, again, continue with the introduction. We'll get to that. if we we can. Anyway, here with us today to share what they learned from all these research articles is one of the two study authors, Dr. Kristen Mark. Dr. Kristen Mark is an associate professor in health promotion at the University of Kentucky. She's also the director of the Sexual Health Promotion Lab and the faculty fellow for the Office of LGBTQ Resources at the University of Kentucky. Dr. Mark's research centers around sexual well-being with an emphasis on the importance of sexual pleasure and satisfaction to the study of sexual health. Her work has been published in over 50 peer-reviewed academic journals, and she has presented her work at more than 100 national and international conferences. She also regularly contributes to Popular media outlets to digest scientific findings for the public. Dr. Kristen Mark, welcome to the Science of Sex podcast.
0: Thanks for having me. Okay, so
2: why studying sexual desire in long-term relationships? Why is this important? And how did you end up studying this?
0: Well, for one, it tends to be the most common question that people ask me about in terms of, like, how do I, you study couples, how do I maintain my desire in my relationship? That, so that alone, the fact that it's a, a common question, I think is, makes it uh, an area that's important to study. But
2: Is that what couples you know, are most, most worried about? Is that one of the main, they, main issues that people have?
0: Long-term? Yeah, yeah, that tends to be. It's one of the really common questions that I get from people who are in long-term relationships anyway. You know, they're just looking to how to maintain sex and how to maintain wanting my partner specifically. Mm. I think that that's a really important piece. But also, really, we don't have, as you know, you know, there's there's not a ton of information out there in terms of sexual desire, especially when we're looking at desire as more of a universal experience. Uh, a lot of the research, or at least the comp, and especially the commentary, tends to be really gendered. Sort of like women have no desire and mm. shouldn't have desire, and men. have high desire and should have high desire Mm -hmm. Um, these are sort of the messages that we get in society about sexual desire and that's the piece that really made me interested in the topic in addition to just sort of the the common interest of long-term relationship partners.
2: And we do have data showing that the people who have more desire, that basically maintaining sexual desire in long-term relationships is correlated with some positive relationship outcomes, right?
0: Yeah. So we've done some research and other researchers have looked at this, but when you tend to have higher desire for your partner specifically, so there's sort of two ways to break down desire. Actually, there's multiple ways to break down (laughs) desire, but two that we've looked at are sort of solitary desire, like just desire in general, how often do you masturbate, do you sort of feel that sense but it's not necessarily partner specific and then dyadic desire where it's like how much do you desire your partner specifically Mm -hmm. and so in these long-term relationships we've asked a lot of questions about dyadic desire and that is significantly related to higher um, relationship satisfaction and sexual satisfaction also, talking about sex tends to promote higher sexual desire mm. and engaging in, like, behaviors that are positive for your relationship, so things like trying new things together, um, talking about sex, voicing your concerns, those are types of things that are significantly related to higher desire in your relationship.
2: And do people who desire their partners more stay together longer? Is there, is there some, some research on um, longevity? Well,
0: there's data on the the link to sexual and relationship satisfaction and then there's definitely data on more satisfied couples stay together longer so I think that um, although it's not a direct relationship, like just having desire for your partner is not going to help you stay together longer, but it'll certainly positively contribute to the length of the relationship.
2: Through increasing sexual satisfaction and relationship satisfaction, and therefore you stay together longer. Yeah, right. Exactly. Okay. Okay. So it's an important thing to keep having, I guess, for your partner. But Mm -hmm. the bad news is that desire decreases over time in long-term relationships, right? It tends to ebb and flow, yeah. Yeah, kind of outline this trajectory, you know, how universal, I think many people who've been in long-term relationships have probably experienced that decline to some extent. So outline what that trajectory looks like. How universal is that decline? How quickly does it happen? Does it ever go back up? You know, what What does the, that yeah. path look like?
0: So I think this is where it's really hard to come up with some sort of a universal model. Like at year three you'll see a drop mm-hmm. in desire and then at year seven it'll drop even further I don't know <laughs> right. so that, like, that doesn't exist and I think one of the reasons that that trajectory doesn't exist is because it is so contextual and it's so different for every couple mm. there are different transitions in life that have been associated with dips in desire like um, the transition to parenthood for example sure you know your energy just goes elsewhere or um, a health issue that comes up mm-hmm. can certainly impact or job transitions those types of things can all impact and create these declines, and those are not very predictable necessarily within any given relationship. In that sense, there's not really a clear trajectory. I think the one clear trajectory we can label is more of just an ebb and flow, and that for every couple, it fluctuates. So to expect that you're going to have the same level of desire for your partner throughout your whole relationship that you had in that beginning, those beginning stages where you like couldn't keep your hands off of each other, mm-hmm. um, or where you just like really spontaneously like wanted to have sex with them all the time, right. <laughs> that type of desire just isn't realistic in the context of these longer-term relationships. And that's mainly because you begin to really get to know your partner, and there's something that is, you know, that that spontaneous feeling of desire is really associated with newness and with excitement of the unknown and the excitement of the new, having this new person that you're just getting to know. So, of course, that can't be maintained in the context of long-term relationships. But that Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that desire doesn't exist in the context of long-term relationships.
2: Right. And I guess this is where it becomes important to distinguish these different types of desire that I think a lot of people are not really aware of. I think when most people think about sexual desire... In a long-term relationship, think of that, what you were just describing, that really strong, exciting, spontaneous kind of desire where you just like, simply think or see your partner and you just want to rip their clothes off and you want to have sex with them all the time, which, as, as you said, is not really sustainable at that level. But there are right. other ways of getting to desire. There is other type of desire that can maintain over the course of many years, right?
0: Yeah. So, there, you know, this idea of spontaneous desire, and that's wonderful, if That forms relationships, right? Like that allows you to see that this is somebody that you are super attracted to, that you really want to build something more Mm. with, um, whatever that relationship might be. And so even if it's just a sexual relationship, that's fine. But what we see, though, in these longer-term relationships is that things like um, seeing your partner... And Esther Perel talks about this a Mm. lot in her great TED talk on maintaining desire in long-term relationships with the idea that if you take a step back and you see this partner, this person who you've relied upon, this person who you really trust, who's super dependable, you see them doing something that kind of reminds you of those early days, that will be typically where you would see that spontaneous desire feeling coming back. Mm. But we don't have that opportunity every day in everyday life. for for being able to see that in our partner. What we do have every day, though, is the ability to have other motivations for sexual desire. So sex is not the only sort of object of one's sexual desire, the act of of sex or of release, right? There's Mm. sex brings intimacy. Sex allows for you to feel closer to your partner again. It allows for you to share something with them that is between the two of you or the three or however many, you know, (laughs) this doesn't just have to be in like sort of dyadic monogamous relationships. But this idea of being able to engage in sex and to want to engage in sex for the purpose of benefiting your relationship, that's where we see it coming in a lot more in these are longer term relationships is like understanding, okay, I don't really feel like having sex with you right now. I've got a hundred other things to do, Mm -hmm. but you know what? I know that it's going to feel good afterwards and I know that it'll benefit our relationship and I'll feel closer to you and we'll just both have a better day if we just have sex this morning. Mm-hmm. So, and that's a learning loop. Like that allows for you to see that there is a pathway to having a better day and maybe that pathway involves morning sex even if you don't really necessarily feel like it or have that sort of spontaneous feeling of sexual desire so that's one way that responsive desire plays out I'm gonna just give another quick example of another way it plays out and that is when you're actually in the act so and this is where distinguishing between arousal and desire becomes important um, which I think is a, is a topic we will discuss but the um, sense of engaging in sex and then feeling like okay yeah this does feel good okay, yep, I'm going to keep going. Mm-hmm. That's also a form of desire too, right? Rather than feeling miserable throughout the sex act, which is not encouraged right. um, and, you know, not what any of us want or seek out, that doesn't promote more desire, or nor does it promote satisfaction in a relationship. But that feeling when you're having sex with your partner and you're like, oh, I'm glad I did this. Okay, let's keep going. (laughs) That's also a form of of responsive desire. And and that can be a really rewarding form.
2: Right. So you kind of basically describing starting to have sex, not necessarily because you're crazy horny in the moment. But because of these other motivations of like, well, this is good for us or kind of starting to do something that all of a sudden starts to feel good to your body and then desire kicking in and saying, oh, that actually is fun and good. I want this. Yeah. Sometimes when you haven't gone to the gym for a while and you're like really, it's it's kind of hard to get your ass there. And then you get there, yeah. you work out, and you're like, "Oh my god, this felt so good! Why am I not doing oh, this right. all the time?"
0: Yeah, and there's a lot of there's a lot of similarities there too with like the endorphins that are being produced and all of that. And that's you know a whole other body of research that that shows the benefits of that.
2: But y- yeah, you you mentioned uh, the the difference between arousal and desire, and I think a lot of people kind of use those two things interchangeably or don't really distinguish between these concepts and they are different as well as related to some extent
0: yeah um, I I I think it's really important to distinguish between desire and arousal because so many people label arousal as desire or label desire as arousal. And there's been some studies to show that, especially in women, that seems to be the case, that they sort of misinterpret each. Scientifically, though, we have the ability to distinguish between these things in the sense that um, sort of desire is that motivational state that drives that sort of um, feeling of wanting and wanting something that is not yet attained, like that push towards that. And that can be... um, Mostly measured subjectively, I would say, whereas arousal so subjectively, can, as
2: in just asking people, do you, you know yes. do you want this, or how often do you want this, or how strongly do you want this?
0: Exactly. Um, whereas arousal can be measured both subjectively and objectively, and arousal is that physiological response that may either follow the desire response or come before the desire response, and arousal is this physiological response that can be measured you know, objectively with things like the vaginal photoplethysmograph, or or, um, you know, people are using somography now. There's a variety of ways in which that can be measured physiologically. But then there's also subjective arousal where you can ask somebody, how do you, how turned on or how how aroused do your genitals feel right now? Mm. <laughs> and that question is getting at genital arousal, but it's just subjective genital arousal versus How turned on do you feel right now? How much do you want sex right now? How much do you want to be sexual or have some sort of, how much do you want this? That's desire. So it's really the genital or physiological response that is the arousal piece, and it's the psychological piece that um, is the motivational drive to push you towards that. That is the desire piece.
2: And these two can go together. You could be at the same time desiring sex and being aroused, but they don't have Absolutely. to, right? You can. They don't have to. Right. Your body could be aroused at the moment, but you might not be desiring. The right. Sex. And we
0: see this. We see this happen in, for example, sexual assault cases. Right. Mm. Women being very confused that, um, you know, well, I had a lubrication response. I was wet in the moment. Does that mean that I wanted it? No. That physiological response is not an indication of wantedness. That physiological response in a case of sexual assault for example would be actually probably a fear response coming in Mm. And, Mm. um, and, and there's been some recent research that's been looking at this more closely that I don't engage in but looking at sort of what are the what's going on that's creating this sort of physiological response and a lot of that might have to do with fear and not wantedness at all. Right. So you can have one without the other. A lot of the time they happen together and I would say the majority of the time. But that's where we get into sexual when sexual issues arise. Uh and that's also part of the reason that sexual arousal and desire disorders were combined in the latest DSM was because of this overlapping um, clinical profile where women who come in with low desire also tend to have low arousal and vice versa.
2: Right, right. It's just one one of the two might be more distressing or might be kind of more primary to the other issue. Exactly. Right. Yeah.
0: And so um,
2: kind of take it back to ma- maintaining long term desire in, in relationships. I think the, the, the arousal piece is important for people to understand that that can come both before and or after or sort of at the same time as desire does. And that you can have these kind of different types of, of sexual desire where the, the spontaneous type, which is very typical of the beginning stages where you want it and then arousal comes as a result of wanting, wanting it and, uh, and engaging in it. But there also very often in long-term relationships, you have this responsive desire and that's the one that might take up the majority of the experiences, I guess, that couples have with one another where you don't necessarily desire it, but you start engaging in it. Your body starts getting aroused and then your desire kicks in and kind of continues and and emphasizes further that arousal. Exactly. Yeah.
1: It's funny hearing these kind of conversations, Kristen, because I know uh, Dr. Jana is not a a big fan of long-term monogamy
2: no no come on come on! True. but it is funny that to hear. works for you it's, you go for it's it. It.
1: it's very sweet to hear you <laughs> to talk about this because i know like your <laughs> head's probably churning and like this does not sound something like i would be interested in but you know what as a scientist i will research this and read about this <laughs> <laughs>
2: I mean, whatever works for you. Yeah. You know?
1: I, that's what I mean. Like, it's it's great that you're non judgmental. Because it. it's not like you're breaking into Kristen and being like, uh, Kristen, are these people just crazy that they want to have long term? <laughs> How do they sustain all this for so long? It's just, to me, seems so much work.
2: Okay. It kind of does it seem like work. Yeah. Which. You know, I don't particularly enjoy doing. I guess
1: that's a key term, right? (laughs) Work because people don't like to use that when it comes to a relationship. Like, is that like a is that like a buzzword, Kristen, that like once people start to use the word work, (laughs) that that takes the fun out of a relationship, especially a long term one?
0: I try and talk to, like when I see clients in therapy, I try and talk to them about it not being so much work as effort. Let's reframe. Oh, I like that.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Effort. Effort.
0: And what are, you know, things that require effort tend to be more rewarding. And so, but I will, I mean, consensual non-monogamy is very, uh, is very much requires effort too. It's just a different type of effort, right? Right,
2: exactly. That's true.
1: It's like going back to Dr. Jana's analogy earlier, effort. You go to the gym, you need to exert some effort at the gym. So
0: it all comes back around. And that effort pays off. Right.
2: I mean, yeah, we all kind of make decisions about what kinds of effort are worth it Mm -hmm. to us versus not worth it to us. And so for some people, I think having a a long-term monogamous relationship... Is what they want and they want to do that kind of work <laughs> or yeah. put in that kind of effort into yeah. maintaining that relationship being sexually satisfying for other people consensual non-monogamy yeah. is what sounds a lot more fun and that's the kind of work we're willing to put yeah. in into making it work exactly so whatever works people. Whatever works. Whatever efforts, (laughs) efforts. (laughs) Yes, whatever efforts sounds more fun to you. (laughs) Okay, you you basically published this paper that looked at like 64 different empirical articles looking at people in long-term relationships and how they are maintaining their desire. and, And we we, we we have you here to tell us what you learned about how to do that but uh, tell us just kind of briefly I don't think we've talked about what the methodology of doing these review papers looks like on the podcast before so just super briefly explain what did you do what are these papers how did you find them and then then we'll go on to what you learned from it
0: yeah sure a systematic review is you know it's not just a literature review where you just go through the, the literature in an unsystematic systematic way instead there's a specific process that you follow in order for it to be repli- re- in order for it to be replicated <laughs> mm. so um by being able to replicate what you found that's what makes it systematic right so we did um a massive search which landed us like almost four hundred thousand articles.
2: Four hundred thousand?
0: Four hundred thousand.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Is that like every paper ever published in psychology?
0: <laughs> Thank you to my graduate student, Julie Lasslow, for her uh very hard work in combing through all of these articles. Yeah.
1: I mean she's so, blind now, but that's okay. As long as we have right? the study after
0: <laughs> She's become recluse due to <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so you just you go through and uh, you use very systematic keywords, you know, like sexual desire, long term relationships. And then you have specific search criteria and um, w- and exclusion criteria so that we could narrow down because obviously you can't possibly summarize 400,000 articles. Right. So we managed to, to um, narrow down. And some of these things are important to note, such as like we were not looking at clinical trials, for example, mm-hmm. like things looking to how to help low desire. Instead, we were looking at in long-term relationships, how do people maintain their desire? Just sort of regular
2: people who are in long-term relationships.
0: Exactly. Who are not suffering,
2: who are not going to a a clinician saying, I have low desire, low arousal, help me.
0: Totally. So those are the people that we were most interested in because, well, that's the majority of the population, and we wanted to be able to have this um, article be useful for you know those types of people who are emailing you and I about questions of how to maintain desire in long-term relationships. Right. And also, there had not, just not really been sort of a synthesis of this literature done before. Mm-hmm. So we um, ended up settling on 64 articles, and so those 64 articles were included in the review, and this was from the beginning of time. So we didn't have a date. Sometimes when you do a systematic review, you have a specific date in mind, but uh, it was important to us to just look at all of the literature that had been published on sexual desire. Mm -hmm. So those 64 articles met our inclusion criteria, and um, then you go through and create a massive table, which is available as supplementary file because it's so many pages <laughs> mm-hmm. long, right. uh, with all the methodology that they used, how they co- so how they collected their data, how many people were in their sample, et cetera, et cetera, and importantly, the findings of right. those articles. <laughs> and, sort of, and that's what led us to creating the conceptual model because we needed to figure out a way to organize this. like Yeah, you can't so just
2: present different... a list of like 30 totally. different things. And
0: Yeah, yeah. So we took a socio-ecological approach, and that just means like integrating sort of societal, interpersonal, and individual factors that contribute to maintaining desire and long-term relationships. Okay,
2: let's go through the model. So sure. uh, the, there are these basically three levels of factors that matter for maintaining long-term desire that is individual level, interpersonal level, so you and your partner, and then greater social kind of uh, community level. Yeah. What are some things that go into each of these?
0: So I think also it's important to note that um, the individual is embedded within the interpersonal, which is embedded within the societal. So all of these things interact. Um, Nothing really exists just on its own. In a vacuum. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And so your um, sort of expectations in your relationship, which is an individual level factor, can very much be influenced by the societal factor of gendered expectations of sort of society, like women expected to be gatekeepers of sex and men expected to be the pursuers, for example. So all of this works together. But to start with the sort of individual level, uh, we found things such as expectations. So um, having the anticipation or the expectation that your relationship is going to have this high level of sexual desire that's going to be stable throughout the relationship, that is not very positive for maintaining desire um, (laughs) because these expectations are not going to be met. Unrealistic. Very unrealistic. To expect that it will stay the same throughout a relationship that's long-term is just an unrealistic expectation. And so when couples have have this anticipation of desire ebbing and flowing and understanding also that, it's not always going to ebb and flow with each other, that this is actually an individual-level process where desire in one partner may increase or decrease at a different rate than the other partner, right. um, creating these things we call desire discrepancies, where one of you may be wanting sex and the other may not. And so that, ex- expecting that can be a protective factor for sexual desire.
2: So just knowing that it's going to ebb and flow and that it's going to decrease to some extent, that especially right. that spontaneous desire, that can actually help you maintain more desire and better sex life? Right. Okay.
0: Yeah, because you don't go into like panic mode when you haven't had sex for a week, right? Right. And so it allows for more stability. It's like almost like the expectation of instability provides more stability, <laughs> which allows for the desire to function on its own and just like. The relationship.
2: I think that s- speaks to this expectation that we have in, in our society that you have to have the same level of desire. You have to be just as in love right. and in passion, if you will, in lust, in love and in lust with your partner as, as you are on day one, you know, 10 years down the line or 20 years down the line. And that if you're not feeling that or if they're not feeling that for you, then something is wrong. Then this is not the one that, you know, this relationship is somehow not broken. going well, yeah. broken. Yeah. And you need to go and find someone better. Yeah. You, you
1: right. I also blame you scientists too sometimes because a lot what did of times- we do? Well, here, you'll hear this stat. A happy and it may not be you guys, but a happy couple should have sex at least three times a week.
0: It's once a week, actually.
1: <laughs> once a week? Yeah, because you'll That's hear not
0: these- That's an expectation. Come on, <laughs> you hear
1: these studies, and of course, it's probably not a, a nationally representative study or anything like that, but you always hear about these all these, even if they're phony-blowny, but you, they get out there. They get out into mainstream media and they talk about how people should have sex multiple times a week. So then all of a sudden, these couples start to feel self-conscious. They're like, boy, I just heard on NPR that you should have sex three times a week. What's wrong with Stop us? Stop saying
2: three times a week. It's not three times a I week. Know, she just what? told you it's once.
1: I'm just saying. But you know what I'm saying? Like these, Those are outside pressures, right, through mm-hmm. the media.
0: Yeah, and so let's just be clear then. It's not the scientists to blame there. That's Mm the media, right? That's the media's representation of the science.
1: I'd rather blame the scientists. No, (laughs) you can't because we
2: never say you should have sex this many times a a week. We just tell you the couples who are reporting higher sexual satisfaction have sex at least once a week or something like that. That's what we would say. And then the media would take that. And it's your fault. Your fault. Your radio people and and journalists, yes, who will say...
0: yeah, it's so funny the headlines that have come out of this study too. Like I think there was one sort of focus on it being like men's desire decreases first. And really? um and that was actually not even just the findings in this study. That was something that was written up um in the Wall Street Journal that was like a much bigger it was. She was. She was looking at research. She did a really good job with the article and was looking at research from a whole bunch of studies. Mm-hmm. And this was just one small piece of that. But then it's <laughs> interesting to see how the media saw that headline and now has like taken it and run with it and attributed <laughs> that to being the finding from this study. And oh I'm my like, god! I'm just like really not what we found. Like, yes, men and women can both have low sexual desire, but, you know, none of these headlines are really speaking <laughs> to what we
2: do To the study found. itself, yeah. Now, Chris, in yeah. our
1: defense, you guys make these studies that are too long, so we're no. just trying, you- too many pages. You're so- lazy, <laughs> you don't want to read.
2: <laughs> we-, we, pick-
1: complicated. We-, we pick the one or two <laughs> yes. lines that fits the narrative and we run with it, you know? we got exactly. 180 characters.
2: I'm glad how this <laughs> devolved into who's to blame. <laughs> right. <laughs> Okay, back to well, yes. the science. Yes,
1: back to the science.
2: <laughs> All right, so having realistic expectations for how sexual desire is going to change, ebb and flow over time is mm-hmm. important.
0: Yeah, I think also having a level of autonomy in your relationships. Like you are, you and I are similar age, so like that Spice Girls song, <laughs> "To Become One."
2: Oh yeah. Um,
0: yeah, so that is a horrible idea for a relationship. Like, <laughs> two actually should not become one. Two should just become two who are happy together. Right. Because maintaining this level of autonomy in a relationship allows for some space, right? And like, if you think about Esther Perel again, says that, talks about this, like, di- does, if you think of desire as fire, like, fire needs air. And having that space in your relationship to be able to mm. have that fire stay bright, and that, that is the autonomy piece. You Need to have these individual-level interests, interests, and the ability to uh, be your own person and feel satisfied in that, which is also related to self-esteem and attraction to partner and feeling feeling like you're attractive. Um, those pieces really play a role in long-term desire too, because we project our insecurities on our partners mm. and that can really decrease sexual desire in a relationship. So maintaining
2: also, self-esteem.
0: Yeah, maintaining your self-esteem and feeling like you are focusing in on the things that you are attracted to in your partner and not really um, and trying to kind of dampen those things that you don't find attractive about your partner with the things that are really positive.
2: And when you when you say attraction to your partner, are you talking just physical attraction? or?
0: No, it, there, there were a few studies we reviewed that did focus specifically on physical attraction, but overall um, the studies looked at attraction more broadly than that and things like um, being attracted to your partner from across the room or seeing them be really good at their job or Mm. like seeing them be an engaged and loving parent those types of pieces of attraction are really important and the autonomy feeds into that as well because of the fact that by being an autonomous person having your own identity it does allow you to kind of pursue your interests in a way that can be very attractive to your partner
2: yeah and as you were talking earlier right having the the two not become one but maintain that autonomy puts a little distance between you and your partner and maintains a little bit of that maybe novelty or mystery or something something that's that's your own, that can spark desire. Exactly.
1: Do we quote any more Spice Girl songs? Maybe if you want to be my lover, you got to get with my friends. Does that come (laughs) up at all in the study?
0: Um, You know, I actually should consider looking at that. Because that would, I, I agree with that statement.
2: Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> if you want to... Spice Girls got it right. Yeah. Look at
1: that. They were right. well ahead of their time.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, the individual level things like stress, fatigue, being, um, you know, getting sick, those types of things can obviously decrease sexual desire in a relationship. So trying mm. to maintain one's health. And decrease stress and fatigue in a relationship. Right. Um, one of the studies though, or actually a few of the studies contradicted one another with the stress response because some people actually get higher, become more, um, sort of horny or have higher sexual desire when they are stressed. stressed out. Mm. and others have lower so again very individual depends on so the is person. that an
2: individual difference or is there a ceiling effect where too much stress like a little stress is good but not too much stress
0: I wouldn't say that the research has gone that much into depth that would be a really interesting study but mm. I don't think that there's been any studies that have gone and looked that deeply at it
1: mm. it's almost like makeup sex like some people have right, great right. sex after breaking <laughs> up and some is like it's the worst experience. no way Yeah. <laughs> they just don't want anything to do with it
2: Right. right, right. and how about Uh, People's general levels of sexual desire or sex drive, I I don't remember seeing that in in your paper. We all kind of differ. I know you've argued that sexual desire is more of a state than a a trait kind of thing, but... People do differ in, in just this solitary desire, how often they think about sex and how often they want sex and how often they masturbate and, and those kinds of things. So are people generally higher on sex drive, more likely to maintain sexual desire in long term relationships? or?
0: Yeah, I would say that that sort of um, that more trait like way of thinking of desire where um, you kind of just are how, however you are in a, in a solitary desire setting is sort of stays with you throughout life. Um, I think that that can offer some information, but really all of these other contextual factors play such a large role that I'm not sure, um, I don't really see that being one of the more salient predictors of maintaining desire in a long-term relationship, because even that sort of, Solitary, like desire for masturbation, for example, even that has been shown to ebb and flow for people. Mm. And so ha- this idea that you sort of have this stable level of desire throughout your life, I think that the studies that have shown that are kind of missing a bit of a contextual piece there that's really important. And um, yeah, I, w- mm. I, w- I, would, I would say that it might play a role, but... I think that it's not one of the bigger players.
2: Okay, so what are some of the interpersonal factors that you found help and maintain long-term sexual desire?
0: So just as having higher desire impacts satisfaction positively, having higher satisfaction also impacts desire positively, <laughs> right? So. Um, More satisfied couples tend to have higher sexual desire. As you mentioned in the opening of this, relationship lengths um, over the course of a relationship, desire does tend to decline overall. But when we look closer at that, and we don't just look at it as this linear relationship, we actually see that it ebbs and flows. It's not just this linear decline mm. so um, relationship length has a complicated impact on desire and um, we see that <clears throat> when couples reach certain milestones in their relationship their desire might go back up um, and desire is complicated right also couples who are more compatible with one another sexually tend to have higher sexual desire as you can imagine yes um, <laughs> yeah, date so, your
2: own species as read me says mm-hmm. sexual right? species yeah <laughs>
0: positive for maintaining desire
2: that can be both in terms of like how much sex you want as well as what kinds of sex you might want right
0: yeah the how much piece is important also there's been a little bit of research to suggest that self-expansion so engaging in um, things that sort of open your world with your partner
2: tell us more about that
0: so it's this idea of being um, exploratory checking out things that you wouldn't maybe normally do um, expanding your world in a meaningful way by trying new things together Those Mm. promote desiring relationships and couples who engage in more of these uh, self-expanding activities together. And it doesn't just have to be activities. It can be, you know, um, where you and your partner love to travel together or have a shared interest in things that allow you to learn new things.
2: So it's not just buying new lingerie and new sex toys. We're not just talking about Uh, new, like, sexy things. I would
0: not say that that is self-expansion, no. No? (laughs) (laughs) I think that that can promote emotional intimacy, and it can promote satisfaction in the relationship, if your sexual compatibility means that you both like that. Right. (laughs) But it's not necessarily this broader level self-expansion. But being sort of, uh, being game for these types of... new experiences is part of self-expansion mm.
1: so don't just bring home yeah. a double-sided dildo if you haven't discussed that before that yeah was, maybe
0: at least like send them a few emojis first <laughs> <laughs>
2: okay but yeah, yeah. The, the the self-expansion i think is is an is a really important interesting thing that we don't necessarily talk a lot about because it doesn't directly relate to sex necessarily
0: right yeah. but it
2: involves bringing in these kind of new and different experiences with your partner that I think go back to what uh, Esther Perel was talking about and you were talking about earlier, right? just kind of bringing, mm-hmm. seeing your partner in a different light or doing different things, or right?
0: Yeah, and then um, as we touched upon, like, communication is really important in a relationship. I can't stress this enough. It's just so, I mean, it seems like such a boring piece of advice, you know, <laughs> like, oh, communicate with your partner. It seems so overplayed or whatever, but... <laughs> It, people don't do it so yeah mm-hmm. it might be overplayed and it might be like this sort of thing that you don't want to hear anything about it anymore but people still aren't doing it so right. communicate then I can stop giving that piece of advice like once people actually start communicating about sex or communicating about how they feel about their sex life with their partner or actually saying hey I feel like we haven't had sex in a while mm-hmm. do you think we could just do that thing?
2: <laughs> right <laughs> And would mm-hmm. kind of the openness to responsive desire that we're talking about in the beginning, does that fall under here as well?
0: Yeah, that idea of like you come home from work and you're, you're tired and your partner offers to rub your feet.
2: <laughs>
0: mm. um, not kind of pulling away from that or unless you happen to like really not like your feet being touched, but I hope your partner knows that about you. Um, <laughs> But being responsive and being open to intimacy in other ways, in addition to and like touch in other ways, in addition to just sex.
2: Right. That might lead to desire and sex. Totally. Not necessarily. Actually, this is something that I often will get as a question whenever I talk about kind of being open to responsive desire by people saying, but when does that turn to pressure into sex that you actively yeah. don't want, right? Where is that line? And, and especially maybe for people who have some sexual trauma, and how do you exactly navigate when this is a positive thing that you're just open to sex happening, even though you're not super horny, versus you're allowing sexual pressure or coercion right. to happen?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really important point. I think whenever I give that piece of advice, it's always with the caveat of this is in the context of a healthy relationship. And I understand that healthy relationship is a loaded word and many people don't necessarily know for sure what that means for mm. them. Um, and in those cases, I would say looking at the underlying reason of why you're having sex when you don't feel like it. So that brings us back to these approach or avoidance goals. And, um you know, the work of Impet and and um, Muse, mm. Amy, and yeah, so they um, have found that when you engage in sex for reasons of these approach goals, like maintaining satisfaction in your relationship, building intimacy between the two of you, mm. if that's the reason that you're doing it, as opposed to the reason of avoiding conflict, if the reason that you're doing it is to avoid some sort of conflict in your relationship, then I think that's an indication that we're walking that line a little too close to the coercion side. Mm. But if your motivation for doing it is to build intimacy in your relationship and to um, sort of help the relationship in a way, then I think that's where, and and where you're also satisfied at the outcome, because if there's not mutual satisfaction, then that strategy also does not work.
2: Right. I think that's, yeah, the approach versus avoidance motivation is an important piece that can yeah. help people distinguish when is this a good thing to do versus a bad thing to do. And I another thing that I, I tell people often is this is usually a good thing to do if you're kind of relatively neutral to begin with, as opposed to when you're actively like, no, I really don't want this. Like right. you have this very exactly. strong feeling of I don't want you to touch me right now, as opposed to eh, I'm not really I'm just not very horny but i'm not actively kind of averse to this happening
0: yeah and we can we, we can distinguish that and i think that's a really good thing to pay attention to that shouldn't be ignored
2: right good to have that have that out there
0: <laughs> right and
2: then the final piece that the interpersonal and the individual a set of factors are embedded in as you said is the social kind of larger community yeah. piece what are some of those factors that fall under this
0: And I think this piece plays a huge role in sexual desire in a way that's not really discussed very often um, and certainly has been under-researched. And one of the reasons it's been under research is because it, it is kind of tough to measure these things um, and would take some sort of cross-cultural research, I right. think, as opposed to what a lot of this is, which is taking place in North America and Europe. But these gendered expectations that we place, as I mentioned earlier, women as gatekeepers, men as pursuers, that really plays a role in people's desire. And mm. women, I mean, gosh, like we're taught from, girls are taught from such a young age say no to sex all of those messages are directed at girls they're not directed Mm -hmm. at boys say no to sex say no um i love amy schumer's bit on um how she was always told like men want one thing and that one thing is they want to have sex with you and then she like became of an age where she could have sex and she's like wait a minute where are all the men like (laughs) she was like you know walking guys like are they are they just going to jump out all of a sudden like what's gonna happen here i thought that men only wanted sex like where are they (laughs) 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 and so i think that really illustrates the way that girls are given this message that like men want one thing from you and that one thing is sex and you should say no to it and you should be afraid of this right this is something to be afraid of yeah
2: potentially traumatic and scary and risky and you should yeah limit access to it
0: or trade it for
2: love and marriage
0: totally and then Men are also screwed over by that message because that also makes it seem like men are always wanting to have sex with you. All
2: the time (laughs) with everybody. yeah.
0: Right. Which is also not true. Like right. men can have low desire too. Men can, men's desire is as complex as women's. And right. this is the part that I feel like we get so wrong. It's like men are just this on and off switch, show them a pair of tits and they're up. Like, <laughs> that is not how it works. It might work that way for some, some men, men, just right. as it does for some women. Mm-hmm. But that's really, like, so oversimplifying men's sexual desire, and I think that does a huge disservice to men. Mm -hmm. That feeds into, you know, this egalitarianism that we have where couples who tend to have more equality in the relationship, although there's been some mixed findings Mm. on that. in in the literature, with some finding that it uh, increases sexual frequency, others finding that it decreases it. I mean, again, I think we just don't have uh, really solid ways to look at this in as nuanced of a way as this complicated issue becomes. Mm. And then the gendered expectations feed into a sexual power struggle that exists within men and women. Um, And I think this can also play out in same-sex couples. The gendered expectations, all of this plays out in same-sex couples as well. Um, It's just that the research on same-sex couples has been not nearly as comprehensive as it has for heterosexual couples Mm -hmm. and with those heterosexual couples we still don't have comprehensive research but just this idea that and i think the sexual power struggle piece feeds into our the rape culture that we live in and just the idea of men and sex and power and how that's all really intertwined um and can that can be really problematic for women's sexual desire and men's Mm -hmm. and then the restrictive sexual attitudes uh just (laughs) Gosh, (laughs) if only we could see sex as a natural part of human development. (laughs) If only. Then everyone would be (laughs) maintaining desire in their long-term relationships. (laughs) Well, maybe not, but... (laughs) But certainly
2: a lot of the pieces that we're already talking about in terms of interpersonal and and individual factors would be better, like communications around sexuality and thinking Uh, about sexual compatibility with your partner and, I don't know, the kinds of expectations that people would have around uh, desire and long-term relationships, like, all of those things would be much more realistic and much easier to accomplish if we lived in a society that had more permissive kind of sexual values.
0: Yeah, or even just saw sex as, like, this thing that is integral to relationships.
2: Right. (laughs) You know? Yeah, I think a lot of the time, the sexual compatibility piece, people will ignore that, because they, they grow up in a world that says, hey, eh, you know, sex is not that important or, you know, that's just something you do to make babies and these other things you need to pay attention to that you're compatible in terms of, I don't know, education and interests in whatever else, you know, how right. you want to live your life or whatever. But that sexual compatibility is just not important. And so people will trade that will make a trade-off for, for other things, and then they end up suffering for 20, 30, 40 years of their lives because they're sexually incompatible.
0: And even if they are sexually incompatible, they have such restrictive sexual attitudes that they're not willing to seek help for that. Mm. When just because you're sexually, you feel like you're sexually incompatible with your partner, like, you can both do things to try and fix that. Like, right. there are ways to improve your sexual compatibility. This is not a death sentence.
2: Right, right. So, exactly. but
0: those indivi- same individuals who, like, jump into a uh, marriage without knowing if they're sexually compatible are the same ones who aren't willing to go and see a professional for help with their sexual issues
1: right but then you have to talk about it though
0: exactly (laughs) wouldn't that be
2: horrible (laughs) awful oh my god (laughs) that's a lot of stuff
0: it was a lot of stuff and i think the overarching thing here the take-home message is like desire is super complicated and there are a lot of factors that go into it so those sort of blanket statements about men have higher desire than women like they just don't make sense based on the research yeah. because there's so many factors that are going on here and all of these factors contribute to whether or not you're able to maintain desire in these long-term relationships and those factors are going to change from relationship to relationship as well right so it's complex and it's complex for men and it's complex for women like and everybody in between. There is no real Magic pill solution, yeah. one like solution to all of this. Okay, so
2: but if you had to take off your academic researcher hat for a minute and put on the, you know, Kristen Mark who writes for popular media and tries to help regular people, you know, people like Joe here who's been in the same monogamous oh, relationship for 20 years and is wondering how do we keep this going. I don't know, translate some of these things into points of what people can do to maintain sexual desire in their LTRs.
0: Yeah. I think improving communication is my first (laughs) Mm -hmm. suggestion. Talk about sex. Talk about sex when you're having sex. Talk about Mm. sex when you're not Not having having sex. sex, Like at the breakfast table, text (laughs) about it. If you feel uncomfortable talking in person, then do it over the phone. Like Mm. there's so many ways that we have to communicate with our partners that people just aren't using. So talk about it. Also, allow your partner space to be an individual and, you know, really support them in those endeavors. I think Mm -hmm. that can fuel desire in the relationship on a lot of different levels. Also, taking care of yourself and having this feeling of being self-confident and having your own interests and understanding that your relationship is one part of who you are, that can really help with maintaining Mm -hmm. desire for your partner. And just feeling sexy,
2: whatever that Means to you. Whatever that means
0: right. for you. Yeah, that doesn't necessarily mean lingerie and right. candles. It means like, like it definitely wouldn't mean that to me. So, mm-hmm. you know, everybody's different in terms of what, what that does for them. Mm-hmm. Also, I think with the societal piece, one of the biggest take-homes from that is just like acknowledging that these exist. There's not necessarily something that you can do in order to make that impact absent or make it go away. But I think acknowledging that those expectations that society places on us, those messages we got about sex in childhood, Mm. all of those things really impact us. And so there's no on and off switch once you get into this sort of committed long-term relationship that allows for you to suddenly be able to be this free sexual being. Mm. And so acknowledging that and talking to your partner about that and sort of like, Digesting some of that together, I think, can be really beneficial.
1: I mean, I know you like to quote the Spice Girls, but this you can also quote <laughs> salt and pepper here. You know, let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk really, about all the good
0: things. We could just like translate this whole podcast into a whole bunch of one liners <laughs> <Well, yeah. laughs> <laughs> and make a pop song about it. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> we can even
2: start a band.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the sex positives or something like that, you know? <laughs> really,
0: really good rapper. <laughs> all
2: right. <laughs> we have a plan. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs>
2: all right, there you go, folks. Now you know what to do if you want to put in all that hard work into making long-term monogamy work for you. And spicing up your life. <laughs> right. <laughs> Dr. Kristen uh, Mark, thank you so much for being in the Science of Sex podcast. Thanks for having me. It was great.
1: <laughs> oh geez we have forgot to ask Kristen about netflix that's all right oh no that's all right i'm sure she agrees with me to make sure you unplug when you get to the bedroom i think that that's probably a mm-hmm. pretty sound
2: advice it's great advice yes
1: <laughs> from from the non-scientist in the room but uh yeah so that wraps up episode number 34 of the science of sex podcast hopefully you enjoyed today's episode because today was i think important because it's a very mainstream topic because yeah, sometimes yeah. we kind of we kind of dig deep and find a lot of nichey things, but mm-hmm. long-term relationships,
2: there's a lot of them out there. Yeah, most and- people will <laughs> find themselves in a long-term relationship at one point in their lives. At one yeah. point in their
1: lives, so maybe there's a good takeaway for for mm-hmm. someone listening. And uh, if you enjoyed today's podcast or any of our podcasts, make sure you rate and review us. If you listen to us via iTunes, give us a few stars. Yeah. Generally, the more the merrier. <laughs> I think we we we'd say you know it's always toward, the more the merrier. To, like, what do you say? It's, you know, swiping right, go right. <laughs> Keep going, go, going right to the more stars. Uh, and also, you know, drop us a comment. Let us know what you think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Dr. Jana's Patreon page is always active, and she's always offering up some nice little goodies mm-hmm. to uh, friends and family. And, uh, <laughs> and family. Patreon and do- supporters. Yes, patreon.com slash Dr. Jana And support a little bit. You know any much. It's like the star Couple thing. Couple dollars. Go up. Five, you can ten. go up one star with the five stars. Keep going as much going as you right. want. right. <laughs> awesome. Well, we will be back next week for episode thirty-five.
2: Yes. Who will we be chatting with? Next week we have Dr. Christian Grove. Who is a local? So we're gonna have somebody in the studio right. with us, as opposed to calling in, and he's gonna talk to us about some of his research on HIV prevention strategies among uh, men who have sex with men, so gay, bisexual men, and other okay. men who have sex with men. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah.
1: All right. So, like I said, we do, we do it all here. We got we, we kink do it last week. We got long term boring people this week and next week. <laughs> we
2: got uh, you know guys and, and doing their thing. Good for them. Doing their thing. Yeah.
1: All right, Doctor
2: Jana. Uh, See you next next week. you
1: you be okay without me for a week?
2: I think I can manage. All right.
1: (laughs) See you next time. Bye. Bye. The Science of Sex is produced in New York City. To connect with Dr. Jana and Joe, follow them on Science of Sex Podcast or on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod. Subscribe now to listen to the weekly podcast. This has been The Science of Sex.